If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Reading this text today, you see the title, He Did What? It is the question that I asked myself numerous times in reading this chapter. And the thing is, is the word he can apply to several characters in this chapter. I read about what Ur and Onan did, and I think, he did what? I read about what Judah did, and think, what? And then read what God did. I think, he did what? It is a chapter that uh, fills you with shock. So I, um, I am now under the assumption that everyone here is here because they want to be here. And uh, therefore, you're going to take responsibility for what you hear. Uh, as, as we read this together, um, it's, it's not one of those easy reading chapters. And you will often read it and then look back at the cover and make sure you picked up the right book. Uh, what is this exactly? But I just want to assure you that this chapter is here for a purpose. Uh, it's not gratuitous uh, in its immorality and things that are mentioned. It's there for a very specific reason. And I uh, wish to get to that reason. But in the nutshell, just understand that what you've got in chapter 38 is a display or illustration of a concept we call worldliness. All right? Worldliness. Uh, in fact, that subject is best addressed in a passage out of the New Testament, First John chapter 2. Verse 15 and 17. And what I'd like to do before reading Genesis 38, I'd like to read to you First uh, John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. Because in this chapter, or in this passage, First John 2, it talks about the components of worldliness. We'll see it displayed in this chapter 38. Uh, as well as it talks about the antidote uh, to this uh, worldliness, this concept of worldliness, and that also is displayed for us in chapter 38 and 39. So let me read to you 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 17. After hearing that, having that in the background, then we'll turn to Genesis 38. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions... Is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we read from the passage, do not think like everyone else. Do not be controlled by the same values that everyone else is controlled by. We are to be different. And that is a theme throughout the Bible of God's people, that there is a, a separateness. There's a difference in how they live, that though we're in this world, we are not of this world. That was especially true for Abraham's line, Isaac and Jacob, Judah and all these. That was a command, uh, expectation by God. Because remember, God's given them a promise that in their line, nations will come, kings will come. That in this line, there will be someone who will be a blessing to all the nations. And we compare that with Genesis 3.15. And we know that it's none other the one who will take care of the sin problem. And so God has an invested interest in the line of Jacob and Judah uh, in this tribe. So it's especially important for them uh, to be separate from the others. And Genesis uh tells us that God had prophesied there would be a day and time when the people of Jacob, their line, would leave the promised land, go into another land. There they would be oppressed for over 400 years. In the meanwhile, the people of the Canaan land will continue in sin until God says it is enough. 
And then God will deliver the people out of this land that they're in oppression and bring them back to the promised land. And God will use the line of Jacob to bring punishment to these people. So consequently, it was important that God said, you know what, when you get a wife, go, uh, you know, don't get one from this area. Go back to the home uh, where you guys come from and obtain a wife there. Uh, And so that was something that uh, was important. In Genesis 37, we find how God brings the people of Israel to Egypt using Joseph and and the sin of the brothers in a very uh, bad way, a horror, a betrayal, um, bringing them down to Egypt. In chapter 38, we come to realize why he did that. Because it comes clear in chapter 38 that the people of Jacob, Judah especially, is starting to act like the people around him. He's becoming worldly, if you will. And so... No, he's intermarrying, he's acting them, acting like them, taking on their customs. And so, listen, God says this. He says, I would rather them go to Egypt where they will be counted as slaved and oppressed for 400 years. And there in that land, they will be subject to the racism of Egypt who will despise the shepherds, uh, the Hebrew shepherds so much they will don't want to touch them, much less marry them. And that would be better. To be subject to the racism of Egypt, and they're at least pure and dependent on me, then let them prosper in this land, and there they lose their identity. Wow. But that seems to be what God has done. So in chapter 38, we see a little bit of the why. Now, knowing that, let's look at the text, alright? You, you just guys kind of hold on, uh, and we'll stand as we read this together. Uh, in honor of what this is, this being the word of God. So let's stand. And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adilomite whose name was Hirah. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my sons, grew up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Harad, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come. Let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? 
He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is this cult prostitute who was at Enem at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law. By the men to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took out and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. She said, What? A breach you've made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on the hand, and his name was Zerah. You may be seated. Well, in this passage, we're going to look at the components of worldliness, as given to us by 1 John 2, 15 and 17. We'll also look at God's response. Two responses identified in this passage to worldliness, as well as the solution, the antidote. So let's look at this first, mining it for the components of it. Notice uh, you see a little hint of this in verse 1, that Judah is taking a different turn. The Bible says that he left his brother's encampment. It had something to do with the previous chapter. He says at, it happened at that time. What time is he talking about? Sometime soon after, uh, well, he Judah lied to Jacob, his father, about Joseph. And sometime soon thereafter, uh, Jacob made a vow, a commitment, that he would never get over the loss of his son, and that to his days, uh, to the end of his days, he would be mourning. Uh, and so something about that, perhaps maybe the guilt, perhaps maybe the constant bickering of his brothers, uh, perhaps maybe the constant depressive atmosphere that was around Joseph, for whatever reasons, he says, you know what, I'm not hanging out with these guys anymore. I'm going to go off on my own. And so you have these two chapters, uh, the departure of a brother, Joseph, involuntarily, but still at the idea of Judah, he is taken down to Egypt. In chapter 38, you have the removal of Judah himself, done voluntarily at his own suggestion as well. And he removes himself from the brothers. And so he starts hanging out with this man named Hurrah. And every time we see Hurrah, he seems to be something bad going on. He seems somewhat of a negative influence in uh, Judah's life. Remember, his name means praise the Lord. And we find that he's doing the exact opposite, that even by his name, uh, he is being a, a hypocrite uh, in his actions. And so verse 2, Judah is there and he's around the Canaanites. And so consequently, he sees, uh, no doubt, a beautiful Canaanite woman. How, how come I say beautiful? Well, we see that the text says that, that the motivation behind his actions in marrying her was his sight. 
he saw her, and that in seeing her, uh, he took her and went into her. And so we see again the desire of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the component of, <coughs> of being worldly, of taking on the values of this world, is uh, taking these things that the world says are beautiful and what our eyes says are beautiful, and let that be the controlling factor of our actions and priorities. Beauty is something to enjoy, but not something to control you. And so uh, Judah is controlled at this point, marries a Canaanite woman. So we find that his allies, those that are influencing him, are those who have values of this world, of Hurrah, the Canaanite, of now his wife, the Canaanite, that are influencing him. He has three children, Ur, Onan, and Selah, as we see in verse 3 for 5. Uh, and see in verse 6, the emphasis on Ur er as the firstborn. We've seen throughout the Bible, that's a prominent feature, Okay. Uh, the, the firstborn, the social prominence. And then we're seeing, uh, well, verse 7, it just gets bad all the way down. And we think, man, you know, just when he doesn't get worse, he thought it couldn't get worse. It does. Why all this gross stuff? Well, you know, if you were to go and, and get a, a diamond, I remember the one time I, I bought a diamond uh, ring and asked for a diamond. I went to the jewelry store. Instead of putting the diamonds out, they first put out black velvet. They thought, well, these aren't diamonds. Why are you putting out the black velvet? Well, we put the black velvet out so we can put the diamonds on it, and you can see even uh, the, the more clearly the brilliance of these diamonds and the cuts and the facets of the various colors of this diamond so you can enjoy the diamond more. What you've got here between Genesis 38 and 39, 38 is the black velvet, all right? It is the contrast to what Joseph will be in chapter 39. And so keep that in mind that as we see Judah and how he's acting, we see Tamar, we are going to also be contrasted in just a little bit with Joseph and the Potiphar's wife and, and the difference between these two. And so verse 7, God's working in Judah's life much to Judah's chagrin. Sometimes the hand of God can be a devastating thing. And in this case, it was the loss of his firstborn son, Ur. It's the first time mentioned in the book of Genesis of an individual uh, having his life killed, in essence, by God. Having his life cut off prematurely by God. Now, you've got Noah and the whole world being devastated. You've got Sodom being devastated. But here, for the first time, an individual is marked out and is revealed that the Lord put him to death because of the great wickedness and the sight of the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't go in to explain what that wickedness is because that would be gratuitous. It would be unnecessary, which lets us know that all this gross stuff we're about to hear is necessary, okay? Uh, and something struck me. I thought, man, you know what? Judah, <laughs> Judah got away with this, and he lived. Man, what was Ur doing? What was Onan doing? Yeah, it lets us know how bad things were. And so, consequently, Judah says to Onan, the, the next brother, the youngest brother, I want you to do your job of being a good brother-in-law. Now, being a good brother-in-law is different today <laughs> as it was then. All right? Uh, and we can thank, be very thankful about that, the influence of the New Testament society today. Um, but in that day and time, in that custom, if a man died without having children, that husband's brother was, was to come in and to produce children with that sister-in-law. Okay? The idea behind this was that the children that were to be born in that relationship would not belong to that man, but to the deceased brother. 
the name would not be to the man, but the name would be born of the deceased brother. And any inheritance that would have come to the deceased brother would instead go to their children. So uh, to do this job of being a brother-in-law was a sacrificial uh, system. It was uh, not only giving of your resources to protect this lady and their children, but was to forfeit any blessings that might have come your way and instead would go to uh, their children. All right. So Onan wasn't very excited about this. So you see that in verse 9. He knew the offspring wouldn't be his. And so he developed a process. Uh, notice it says verse 9, so whenever, the, the, my, the translation read from says whenever, yours might say when, I think whenever captures the grammar a little bit better because it implies this is an ongoing activity. This is a practice that Odin would do that he would, uh, well, use birth control. Um, they didn't have some of the conveniences that people have today. And so this is a, a gross form and somewhat unnatural form of birth control that he would practice. But notice the motivation behind it was so not to give offspring to his brother. Okay. Now, some people use this text and think, okay, here's the proof text against birth control. And so consequently, uh, they do not use birth control uh, for this passage. But I would just bring to your attention that the motivation behind this, or the, the real evil behind this, was not necessarily the practice as much as the reason behind the practice. And that was of a pure selfishness, okay? Just selfishness of not protecting the woman nor uh, being considerate or loving toward his brother, okay? So that is the motivation behind this, and it was financial, it was a huge financial cost for him to have children that would uh, go to another. He would lose out the blessings as well as giving of himself and caring for this family. And that being said, um, well, we need to be careful for our reasons for birth control. Because uh, we need to make sure sometimes it can be more like Onan's reason of a pure financially selfish reason as to why we don't. Uh, have children or more children uh, than we do that's a good question now one thing i want to consider and bring to this discussion is that onan was commanded to have children all right he was commanded by his father to have children and even before that he was commanded by a heavenly father for this tribe to increase that the the blessings of the world was dependent on this tribe and this group so the real question really isn't uh, necessarily should or shouldn't I use birth control. The real question, two questions, what's your motivation? And then, what has God commanded? <laughs> All right? Because that was a factor in this. And I, I, I really wish I was 70 year, old, 70 year old and preaching this because <laughs> this is costly uh, when you can have children and you're, and you're bringing a message like this. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what's being brought out in this. So what was God's view on this? Verse 10. Well, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So, verse 11, Judah is thinking, you know, he doesn't know what's going on in the private bed. All he knows is he's had three sons, two of them are dead prematurely, and the common denominator is this girl Tamar. And so, notice his reaction. Verse 11, uh, Tamar, just remain a widow in your father's house, all right? Um, and when Shelah grows up, then we'll give you uh, her, him. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. He was blind to the sins of his own sons. He thought, it can't be my sons. It's got to be this girl. And so he continues on his way. Well, 
Life goes on. And poor Tamar is forgotten about. Uh, left in his father, her father's home, living the life of a widow, which meant that she was not to marry someone else, that she was committed to the next son. So she's wearing the widow's garments for all these years. Um, and so in the course of time, verse 12, uh, Judah's wife dies. When he's comforted, he went up to Tinmah to sheep, uh, sheep shears, he and his wife, Herod the Adamite. Oh no, here comes the guy again. Something bad's going to happen. All right. Now, Sheep shearer is a celebrative time, is the time of profit. You're getting, getting out your, uh, the crops or the uh, wool from your sheep. And so it's a kind of a celebrative time. All right? Now, we've already seen a little bit of the pride of life. You see this in Odin and his desire to have more possessions and making that a value. All right? And we're going to see a little bit more of the desires of the flesh here as well. So uh, Judah's there. He's in uh, this area. Tamar hears about it. Um, in verse 14, she has a plan. She says, I'm going to take off these widow's garments. I'm going to put myself, put a veil on. And I'm going to hang out by the gates of Timnah near Enam. Uh, because I haven't been given to the son. What is she thinking? I'm going to get a son one way or the other. And I know a little something about Judah. Interesting. She knows where to go. And she knows what time to go. And she knows how to go. In order for her father-in-law to sleep with her. He has a practice. And she knows what that practice is. She's aware of it. And so she goes and sets herself up. Wearing the veil was not necessarily revealing herself as a prostitute. It was more what betrothed women were to do. What gave it away more was that she was by herself in the gates of the city. All right, Where transactions occur. And that's where prostitutes would evidently hang out there. And so here she comes, and she knows what Judah's thinking. Listen, guys, you are fooling yourself if you think your wife doesn't notice. You're fooling yourself if you think your children do not notice where your eyes go when someone passes by. They are aware. The daughter-in-law was aware of the tendencies of Judah. And so... What happens? Well, Judah sees her with the veil on, doesn't recognize her. Interesting enough, the name of the place means eyes. <laughs> and there, in this place called eyes, all he can see is her eyes. And with his eyes, he does not recognize her because of the veil. But he thought she was a prostitute. Verse 16. So they kind of strike up a deal. He says, what's the price? And he says, well, I'll tell you what, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll send you a young goat. This is the third time goats come into the story. Every time, you remember? Jacob deceived his father Isaac with the dead goat, the, the goat skin. You remember Judah deceived his father Jacob by killing the goat and put the blood of the goat on the coat. And now here comes another goat to Judah. <laughs> and he wishes someone got his goat. All right. Now, what happens? Well, she says, all right, well, that's fine, but you don't have any goat here, so I need a pledge. I need security that you're going to pay it. What's going to be security? And so she says, verse 18, here's what I want. I want your signet or your seal. Uh, I want a cord and I want the staff. Now, these three objects were all identity marks for 
him. Uh, the, the seal was sometimes a cylinder that was used, and on that cylinder would be a mark, uh, and would have a cord wrapped on it, so perhaps maybe to hang around the neck. And then the staff would sometimes have an emblem carved in it, some sign carved into the staff. All three of these represent the person. And if, uh, if this Judah was doing a business transaction, he would use that seal and uh, with wax, warm wax, put that seal and put his print on that to authorize that he did take part in this business. And so it represented his identity as well as his authority. Uh, if you will, it's kind of like the credit card of the debit card of today okay except it's even more unique uh, and so what's going on she says i want your credit card i want your identity and i want your authority because it was within her reason to ask let me just bring out something listen when judah had sex with tamar he was giving her his identity and authority When we have sexual relationships with others, we are giving our identity and authority to that person. And is it any wonder that God says, I want sex to be confined within the bounds of marriage where you have a commitment from that person for life. So it is okay to give your identity and authority to them. There's a commitment to go along with it. And so when we are so loose in our sexual relationships, we are giving away our identity and authority. And before long, we have no power nor meaning. And so Judah says, sure, here you go, you take it. And so they continue in their relationship, and the Bible says that in that one-time event, there is a child born showing us the working of God in this. He goes on his own way. Interesting, that seal, we see that passage in in Song of Solomon chapter 8, Song of Solomon chapter 8. And this relationship between a man and a woman, it's beautifully displayed in the Song of Solomon, a a physical relationship. She says to him, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She says, I want to be identified by you. I give my identity, I give you my authority, you give it to me. And so she's been given Judah's identity and authority. And so... Three, you know, time goes on. He says, you know what, I've got to pay off and I want to send a goat. But notice he doesn't go. He sends his buddy, Hurrah, who seems to have helped him get into all this business. He says, I, I really don't want to go to pay this off. You go for me. Why? Because it's publicly embarrassing to go asking, hey, anybody seen the prostitute that used to hang around here? <laughs> Carrying your little goat? All right. So he sends Hurrah, who seems... Have no qualms about doing that. You know, here's a here's a, a, a good little practice. If you ever go by a, a strip club, driving by, and you see a guy walking in the parking lot, honk your horn and wave at him. <laughs> they run. They run. Why? They don't want anyone to know that they're there. All right? It's great. <laughs> yep. It's a lot of fun. So that's kind of what's going on here. He says, I don't really want to be publicly seen in this situation. You go and take care of this for me. And so he goes and he starts asking. But notice the word he's looking for. He doesn't just say prostitute anymore. But you see verse 21, where is the cult prostitute? Hurrah lets us in on something. The fertility, they, they had in their idols, one of the idols would be a fertility god. 
in which they would worship this fertility god in hopes that they would have greater prosperity. And one of the ways they would worship would be having sex with what they called cult prostitutes uh, in a way of worshiping this idol. And so we see that, that Judah is much like Canaan here. Not only does he have a Canaanite wife, Canaanite buddy, but now he has a Canaanite god and he's, and he's got his immorality to go along with it. Wow. Where have you gone, Judah? And they said, well, he's, she's not around. We don't know what you're talking about. And so notice uh, his reaction when he finds out that she's nowhere to be found. She's, <laughs> she says, um, okay, verse 23, well, let her keep those things. Well, let her keep my debit card, my credit card, because if we, if we let this out, everybody's going to be laughing at me. I mean, think about that. You, you want to report that your, your credit card's missing? You say, well, what was the last time you had that credit card? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, forget about it. Well, that's what he's doing. He's, they're going to laugh at me. I'm just going to, we'll just see where this goes, and maybe, maybe nothing will come of it. But listen, what's God's response? We're seeing the in worldliness. We're seeing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's all about image. It's all about my stuff. What's God's response? There have been two responses so far. We've seen one. Listen, write this down. When you are marked by God's name, he will not let you continue in your sin. When you are marked by God's name, he will not let you continue in your sin. What have been the two responses? First, we see in Ur and Onan, who died prematurely because of the great wickedness that they bear the name of Jacob, that bear the name of Judah, which means praise the Lord. God says, you continue in defiling my name. I will not let it go on. I will take you out. And he did. Did you know that premature death is an option for God? For those of us who are marked by his name. What's the second response? God says, I'm going to embarrass the fire out of you. I'm going to humiliate you. That's what he does with Judah. Why? Because the humiliation of God is better than the good image in front of man. Let's see how God humiliates Judah. Well, lo and behold, Judah gets word that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. Not much rejoicing here because there is no husband. And so we see in verse 24, Judah finds out about it. Notice her rea- his reaction. Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. Good night. There is a harshness here. Later on, we find in Deuteronomy that in the cases of adultery, in which this case would have been considered sex outside of marriage, fornication is sex before marriage, but in marriage, when it's sexual sin, it's adultery. Normally, it was stoning in Deuteronomy 22. Two cases are there areas of of being burned. One is when a man sleeps with a wife and her mother. All three are burned. And the other case, uh, according to Leviticus 21, verse 9, is when a priest's daughter becomes a cult prostitute and so he says let her be burned so much more harsh and severe than even what later on deuteronomic law said how is that 
It could very well be, and we see this ongoing today in so many political scandals, that is the ones who have the sin that try to cover up by their harshness. Isn't it interesting? And it's the ones who are always pro-family. It's the ones who are speaking harshly against prostitutes, immorality, and homosexuality, and, and the various things. Those are the ones that, uh, that oftentimes, oftentimes are the ones revealed engaging in the practice. There's so many. No, I can't even name them all. It's a common denominator. That's what Judah's doing. Let's burn her. Let's burn her. Hypocrites are harsh because they're not dealing with their own sin and experiencing the grace of God in their life. When you deal with your own sin and you see the grace of God, it's amazing how that grace exudes from you. Judah's not done it. He's about to about to be brought to him so you can imagine so tamar says all right we'll see this and so she says i tell you what you you're so harsh you're so angry you got this this righteous wrath well i bet you want to know who did it then judah you want to know i've got their seal their staff and their cord i think it's probably about that time judah's stomach probably went out of a knot but he's already put it out there he can't back down now. He said, okay, let's go see it. Can you imagine as things, things were thrown at his feet? Just the absolutely sickening feeling he had. Other folks were looking around and said, Judah, yeah, that staff looks like your staff. Where's your staff, Judah? He had no reply. He's found out publicly before all. So what does he say well she says she is more righteous than i since i did not give her to my son shiva he was humiliated before all but i wanted to present to you that it was here that he started to change he started to change he says you know what she's more righteous not that she's a saint <laughs> she's no nun but I've been the worst one here. Because I was the one who abused her and neglected her. I didn't take care of her. I, I went back on my word. I forfeited my duty as her father-in-law to take care of her. And then I'm the one who's engaged in prostitute. I'm the one that's done these things. I'm the one who is guilty here. And so the Bible says that he did not know her again. Romans 2, 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse of men, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Be careful how critical you are. First look at your own sins, experience the grace of God on your sins, then you're able to take care of others. Judah didn't do it, so he's harsh. But now it comes crashing down. Two responses to worldliness. One, God can take you out. Two, God can hum humiliate you. But it is the best gift Judah ever received. Notice, from that point on, he did not know her again. He got two sons, twins, out of this one occasion. I believe it could very well be that these two sons replaced the two sons that died. The Bible goes on and says that Perez was the firstborn despite uh, the, the other one coming out, reaching out his hand. And as you read throughout the Bible, you'll find that it is indeed in Perez's line. Of all the sons of Jacob. 
It is of Judah's line, of Perez's line, not, not Shelah, but Perez's line, that ultimately there would be someone named, named Boaz who would one day have uh, another son, uh, a descendant named Jesse, who would in turn have a son named David, who would from that point on be king over Israel, and from his line there would be a king forever. And so when we look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, lo and behold, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, there is none other than this Perez and Tamar and Judah. And we think, oh my goodness. God evidently can use sinners. He can use sinners. So you ask yourself, well, what's the point? Why try to be good? Why try to follow God? What's the point of loving God? If I can not love God, if I can love the world and God can still use me, what's the point? Well, let me just share with you. Remember, this is a contrast between Judah and Joseph. And when we look at the story of Joseph, we find that wherever he goes, he is a blessing. He is a blessing. I'm going to tell you that Judah would have wanted to trade places with Joseph any time when it was all said and done, even though he was sold into slavery because he learned the blessing of God. He learned the grace of God where Judah learned the resistance of God. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 5 says that God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. What do you do with your sin that keeps on going in your life? You humble yourself. You, if, it, if it needs be, you tell someone else. But, Pastor, you know, that's embarrassing. Yes, and that's the point. That's called humbling yourself to find the grace of God. And it is better to be humiliated by God and find the grace of God than to continue on with the image and your pride and the worldliness and the living with the resistance of God. Now, these are the two responses of God. We've seen the components of the worldliness. What is the solution? Well, I'm going to skip ahead just for a second. If you'll let me borrow next week's text, Genesis chapter 39. Joseph deals with sexual temptation himself. And in marked contrast, he, he responds very differently in resisting sexual temptation. And he tells why. Genesis 39 verse 9. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What's the difference between Joseph and Judah? Born in the same family, same father, same promises given to them. Both in pagan situations. Neither one of them were homeschooled that great. <laughs> they were all in public education, if you will. How is it that Joseph is so different from Judah? Joseph was different because he loved God. Notice that is the motivation as to why he doesn't sin. How can I do this sin against God? God has a greater place in my heart and life than that. I love Him. How do you do that? When you get to the point and understand how much God loves you, when you see who you are, when you see your sin, and you stop deceiving yourselves, you stop covering up to others, covering up to yourself, and, and covering up to God, and, and God, and you say, God, this is me, I'm a sinner, I'm no longer deceiving myself, and God says, good, I love you anyway, while you are still a sinner, I sent my son to die for you, and you experience the love of God in such overwhelming ways, that's why we don't get over the gospel, that's why we pray, God, please don't let me lose the wonder of your gospel, because there the love and holiness of God is displayed, there the love of God is shed in our heart, and comes across, and changes who we are, so that when we deal with the sin of this world, we've got ammunition, and that is we love God, 
love not this world, neither the things that are in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. They're not of the Father, but of the world. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Every single one of us walk out with either one of two loves dominating our heart. Do we love this world, or do we love God? And the evidence of your greatest love will be revealed in the time of temptation. Which one will we be, Judah or Joseph? The good news is, whichever one you are, God can use you. God can use you. There's forgiveness. But friends, there's greater blessing, much, much greater blessing to be in the place of love of God and the blessings of God. Which one will you be? Let's pray. Father.